by introducing this technology, Gordon and I were going to cut into huge profits that many law firms and legal service providers were making through a very manual process. So now instead of hiring, uh, you're hiring uh, for your matter 50 contract attorneys or junior associates to do something, I can do it with a computer, you know, in what would take you six months, I can do it in two weeks, a tiny fraction of the cost. Uh, and that wasn't going to go over well. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today we tackle a vision of modernity, and that is artificial intelligence, and specifically as evidence in legal proceedings. We have the great good fortune to have two individuals with considerable expertise in this area. We have Professor Maura Grossman. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here. And we have Judge Paul Grimm of the U.S. District Court of the District of Maryland, and soon to be the head of the Judicial Center at Duke Bolch Institute. Am I correct about that? The Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law and the professor at Duke Law. And I believe we've already covered previously the University of North Carolina's merits, and you're still going to Duke, so we'll we'll let that go forward. We're going to be it's talking. The second, it's the second best school in North Carolina. Well, there you go. There you North go. Carolina is. Yes. Ah, well, we'll see how the indigenous inhabitants feel about your comments, but they feel a little bit differently sometimes. They do. This all sort of originated from my calling Judge Grimm to talk to him about rules and evidence because he is perceived here in Maryland and I think many places as having vast expertise in this realm. And he said to me, Bob, I think there's a far more interesting topic. And he proved to be correct in that, that he co-authored an article with Mora and with Mora's husband, Gordon Cormack, in the Northwestern Journal of Technology and Intellectual Property last December, entitled Artificial Intelligence as Evidence. And having read this article numerous times, there's so much information that's of value in it. I'd love to kind of comb through it and cover the topics associated with artificial intelligence and then kind of see where its intersection is with the law and why that is potentially problematic. First, you each have interesting backgrounds on the way to becoming lawyers and law professors and that sort of thing. Or I wondered if I could kind of touch on your educational history and professional history to give our audience some idea that there's a lot of avenues one can take in one's professional career. Could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So I'm the antithesis of a, a linear career. I'm not one of these people who had, you know, knew exactly what they wanted to do when they grew up and what they would do by 25 and 30 and so forth. My mother was a clinical psychologist. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I became a clinical psychologist. My father was in the insurance industry and Rorschach cards and patients and psychotherapy and stuff seemed a lot more interesting than insurance. So that's what I became, except for a number of reasons. Well, first, psychologists have to be incredibly good listeners and incredibly patient and not tell people what to do. But I'm more of a tell people what to do kind of person. So uh, after about 10 years of being a psychologist, in addition to the fact that managed care came in into being and it changed the entire sort of landscape of, of what I was doing, 
I decided, even though I knew nothing about law, that uh, I was probably more well-suited to be uh, a lawyer because lawyers get to tell people what to do and solve problems. And so uh, I went back to law school and in my early 30s and became a litigator. I found uh, litigation very interesting. And I went, uh, came back to New York where I was, had lived most of my life and uh, went to work at the law firm uh, Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen and Katz, which is a prominent sort of Wall Street corporate uh, law firm. And I, I was um, doing litigation there. And about my sixth or so year, my mentor at the time said, I think you need to develop an area of expertise. And I said, um, I'm really interested in ethics. And he said, no, ethics is not a moneymaker. And you don't have enough, <laughs> you don't have enough white hair to uh, be an ethicist. And an ethicist, you're always telling people what they can't do. And, and I think you would uh, be better at this E thing. There's this E stuff that's starting to get known about and nobody at the firm knows anything about this electronic stuff. Why don't, why don't you do that? And I was like, why would I want to do that? I mean, that's doc reviews and stuff like that. And um, I went out to this think tank that was then in uh, literally in Sedona, Arizona. Nice and I met uh, people like uh, Judge Grimm and lots of other people who were starting to become interested at the ground floor in digital evidence. And uh, I actually came back to the firm very excited about pursuing this as an area of expertise. So fast forward uh, a couple of years, and I'm now handling e-discovery for the firm, except we are swimming in data. We, instead of you know, paper, we're now in a world of a million emails or 10 million emails. And how do you find the evidence uh, that you need for your case? And Wachtell was not a very leveraged firm. There were relatively few associates for each partner. There's really one. And so we'd have, we'd be working on a big case like the World Trade Center litigation. We'd have 20 million emails uh, and a handful of uh, associates to get through them. And uh, my mentor said to me, this is a real problem. You need to solve it. So I started. <laughs> no problem, right? Right. So I started going to computer science kinds of venues. I figured this is a technical problem. There has to be a technical solution. Let me start talking to technical people. And there I, I at a particular conference, I met a computer scientist named Gordon Cormack, who is now my husband, but was obviously not at the time. And he was one of the top spam gurus in the world. And it occurred to me, spam and ham, which is what computer scientists call the good stuff, was not a terribly different problem than relevant, not relevant, or privileged, not privileged. So I asked him if he wanted to play discovery with me. And he started to work with me on matters using what started out as one of the top spam filters in the world, but we tweaked it so it could find evidence. In 2011, we ended up doing what's now a seminal study showing that machine learning, AI, which we'll talk about today, could actually find evidence more effectively and more efficiently than a lawyer. 
or a team of lawyers could or an army of lawyers could. And so I continued to do this work and fell in love with the fell in love with the guy and among other things. So decided to move to Canada. And I am now a computer science professor and I teach courses that are multidisciplinary, both to lawyers and to computer scientists. So I teach computer scientists about uh, ethics, law and policy and the implications of their technology. And I teach lawyers uh, about about tech. So let's see, psychologist, trial lawyer, there's some law professoring in there before you got into this line of work and a computer science professor. So you've had quite a few careers. Do you have any you know, future intended careers that you haven't undertaken yet? Uh, I've been thinking about my next act. As a matter of fact, I've had a chat with uh, Judge Grimm about uh, about that. So to be determined. But there will be there will be uh, there will be one more act. Well, you have to let me know so I can get in on it, too. For sure. It will be an act worth watching. I can promise you that if more is involved in it. And Paul, you have a slightly different uh, career trajectory also. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I guess I'll start by saying that I'm an Army brat. And so my father was an Army officer, Army lawyer, as a matter of fact. And so I was actually born in Yokohama, Japan. And we lived in uh, California and we spent a number of years in Virginia where the Army's Judge Advocate General School is, where I was in middle school and, and early high school. And then in California, in the Bay Area, where, and we lived in Okinawa, someplace after when I was in first, second, third grade, previously lived in Germany. So we travel around a lot. And when I, I went to undergraduate school at the University of California, and I was there from 1969 to 1973, when there was this thing called the Vietnam War going on, and there was a draft. I had an ROTC scholarship. So the people of our great country paid for me to get an undergraduate education, which meant that I had four years of service in the military to owe to them. And since I was an army brat, being in the military was something that seemed much more normal to me than anything else. As I was in college, I thought, well, I'm going to be a history major. And I took a history course and said, man, interesting, but sort of like more trying to figure out what you wanted to do. And I took a class in economics and I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I was like, nah, love the math. And then I took a class in political science, there, sure. And I said, eh, that's not so exciting. And somehow I stumbled into the field of rhetoric, classical rhetoric at the University of California was a lot of ancient Plato and Aristotle, which are sort of the foundations of Western education, uh, the three great arts, medicine, religion, and rhetoric. And I kept taking more of those classes and was more interested in it and a lot of logic. And then it turned into a more modern communications type thing. So they were all old and new. So the arc of time was very, and in the course of doing that, then I realized that I really wanted to go to law school. So So rhetoric led to law school. But yeah, I loved law school. I got a leave of absence from the Army. I was called the Excess Leave Program. And, and what that allowed me to do was to be on active duty in the Army when I went to law school, but without pay. And then in the summertime, so you know, from May until late August, I would go to the nearest Army base for my duty. And then equally in the month between semesters after the fall semester before the spring semester, I would do the same. So that turned out to be about three or four months a year after duty. And uh, I went to the University of New Mexico School of Law. And um, 
the nearest military base was, in my mind, the greatest oxymoron in the English language, Fort Bliss. Um, and Fort Bliss no wasn't passes. blissful? Yeah, well, nah, it was blissful for me, but most many people do not equate military service with bliss. They equate it with a lot of other things, but not necessarily bliss. Uh, it was blissful for me. And, and I went into my first year of, of active duty in between my semesters um, and rolled into the Judge Advocate General's office at Fort Bliss. And I had taken the usual first year classes, which was constitutional law and criminal law, but not evidence, certainly not criminal procedure. And I walked into the legal office and, and I was told we've had three prosecutors transferred out. We're down prosecutors. You are now going to be a prosecutor and handle cases. At that time, to be a prosecutor, you did not have to be a lawyer to be a defense attorney. You did. So I was a guy with one year's law school going into court and trying cases against people who were lawyers. Uh, and in the gap between my first and your second year of law school, I tried somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 cases, of which 12 of them were jury trials. And I went back to law school with more trial experience than most of the professors. And I had a really bad attitude because you couldn't teach me anything. I, I'd been doing it. You know, and they say, well, to cross-examine you, I'm thinking, ah, is that cross-examine? But I knew that I wanted to do litigation. That taught me that. When I graduated from law school, then I owed the Army my time and service, and they sent me back east. I was sent to Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland, and they started me off as a defense attorney. And then when I started winning cases, they said, well, we can't have that. So they made me a prosecutor. I'm teasing. Uh, but it just turned out that they needed, that they had enough prosecutors. They made me a defense attorney. I did well enough there where they made me a prosecutor. But then fate intervened and I was assigned after about a year to go to the office of the Judge Advocate General in Washington, D.C., in the Pentagon. And I worked there at the headquarters of all the Army lawyers. And then when I did that, and when my time was coming up, I tried to say, well, what do I want to do? I had been billeted at the Pentagon in administrative law, which I learned an awful lot, but my love was trial. And so I went into, became an assistant state's attorney, a prosecutor at the local level, then became a assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland, where I was chief of litigation for one of the departments in the state of Maryland. And after that, I went into private practice and was in private practice for 13 years. I became a United States magistrate judge in 1997. Then after a period of time, the chief magistrate judge, it was right around that time. So 97, you know, I had six or seven years when the explosion occurred in the data explosion and you know cardboard boxes which we use when i was a litigator i did commercial litigation it wouldn't be unusual to walk into a, a storage area that had 100 maybe even 200 cardboard boxes but while it seemed like a lot of paper for us then as Maura pointed out it was a drop in the bucket and not even that compared to when everybody started using digital media and it just started exploding and the notion of a document was expanded to include electronic data. And the law just had no way of dealing with it, had no framework. The rules defined document broadly, but the rules were not. It was just this brand new area. 
And we were all thrown into practitioners and experts like, like Mora and then judges. And it was just, we were writing against a blank slate in terms of how to deal with all this stuff. And a group of us, Mora was one of them from the practitioner side, but you know, some, some famous names of e-discovery, John Fasciola, a retired uh, magistrate judge, my dear friend from the District of Columbia, uh, Jay Francis and uh, Andy Peck from up in the uh, Southern District of New York. Dave Waxy from Kansas and uh, Liz Laporte from out in California and some uh, and about a half a dozen or so of these people. We just sort of all were you know, kind of pulled together through gravitational force through the Sedona Conference, which was this think tank formed by a luminary, Richard Raymond, who, uh, rest his soul, who, who died uh, ultimately of cancer, but created this think tank and brought everybody together with this notion of dialogue, not about technological issues generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we came up with, with, you know, with best practices for how to deal with this stuff. The rules of civil procedure changed in 2006 to try to come up with some rules designed to deal with this kinds of stuff, search and how do you search and, and dealing with volume and all that. They proved not to be adequate for the task. And so what's happening is I'm writing opinions and Fasciola's writing opinions and Peck's writing opinions and Francis is writing opinions. And there was a district court judge, Shira Shinlan, who was very, very bright. She's now since retired into mediation. And she wrote some seminal opinions. And we were all kind of like thrown together in all these conferences trying to teach people what this was. And then in 2009, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts, appointed me to be on the Civil Rules Advisory Committee, which is responsible for drafting the rules of civil procedure for review and approval, ultimately by the Judicial Conference of the United States, sort of the board of directors of the judiciary, then by the Supreme Court, and then it goes to Congress, and so ultimately passed by Congress. I served on that committee for six years. I was the chair of the Discovery Subcommittee. And during that time, we came up with a much more comprehensive set of rules designed to deal specifically with electronic discovery. And that's the most comprehensive change to the rules of civil procedure that came out in 2015 that we've had in probably 20 years, 25 years. I think practitioners will tell you that there's pros and cons of the changes that we came up with. Some of the things that we undertook to do, I think we did successfully or improved it. Some people might say that there were some things that we had tried to do that they didn't think were successful as we tried. But the issues associated with electronic discovery continue. When I became a district judge 10 years ago, that was in the early 2000s, 2012. By 2015, we had these new rules out there and the rules have not changed. The judges that were in with me are all retired. There's a young crowd of young magistrate judges and, and some district judges who are more tech savvy. And now you get people like Mora and retired judges like, like Andy Peck and, and uh, John Fascio and Jay Francis, who are special masters or hired to assist in the actual implementation of these procedures. Big data, data management, search and retrieval, all those things are taken for granted as part of the discovery now, but they weren't when we started. Mora, uh, Professor Grossman, and her husband, Professor Cormack, we're really the first ones to put this computer-assisted, technology-assisted review on the map with a number of publications that sort of set the standard and is still the standard. And that's now accepted now. And, and I think that there's little debate now that properly designed and executed computer-based search is better in many, if not most, instances than individual-based review of large data sets. And the need for 
big data has only increased. I mean, when we first started, there was no Facebook, there was no Google. I mean, these things were, were just sort of you know, exploding in time. And now we're in a database society. Um, everybody uses stuff as basic. And, and so that's the art that, that, you know, that's how Moore and I intersected and have become colleagues and friends in this area. And the area consists, it goes forward. But beginning about eh, eight, 10 years ago, with Watson, when all the rage was, you know, the IBM's Watson that could out chess the chess masters and out go the go masters and uh, out Jeopardy the Jeopardy masters. That started coming in. And then what we started hearing dropped like sort of like dropping a name at a cocktail party, artificial intelligence. And then I became interested in that and Maura and, and Lord were already familiar with it. And then we decided that we wanted to collaborate because it became very apparent that artificial intelligence software applications were explosively being adopted in every sector of personal and private life and were being employed in ways that would make it inevitable that the disputes among individuals that take place within our society end up in court and judges and lawyers have to understand how to deal with it. And we had already been through the experience of knowing that explosive growth in technology changing so fast that you can't keep up with it was going to create a need for lawyers and judges to be able to deal with it. This was an area that we had been involved with more on uh, the judges I've mentioned myself for 20 years. It's just a new iteration of that. The only thing which we have learned is that technology continues to change very fast, faster than our ability to understand it. And now what's different about it is, is it's not just people at the helm of this, it's now machines. And so that's what took us to where we are now. It's quite a tale. It's uh, well, when your last name is Grimm, you know, fairy tales are sort of commercials. Very well put. So Maura, you seem to have been quite prescient with regard to a field to specialize in at Wachtell Lipton. And I just, what made you choose that? Oh, it wasn't me. It was Meyer Kaplow, my, okay. my mentor, uh, who pushed me in this area, he's visionary. He understood that it was going to become important. And he also understood the dynamics of the firm and that most lawyers are not terribly technically savvy or interested in math and that I had enough of a background and curiosity in terms of science and so forth that he thought, that it would be a good fit. And he was right. He saw it in me before I saw it in me. But once I went out to Sedona and I saw the quality of the people who were like like Paul, who were starting to think about these issues and starting to realize that the rules didn't fit. I remember coming back to the firm, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. I was sort of like Chicken Little and people telling me, going back, go back to your room and email is not a document. And I started to read. I actually hired a mentor to teach me all the different parts of a computer, learned what a motherboard was and, and RAM and all of that, and just decided to go sort of whole hog, dive into it. And it part of what interested me is that it was continually changing. It wasn't sort of like tax law or something where you 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 learn the code and then you got it. This was every day was was something new, a new challenge, a new problem. I couldn't help but think earlier when you were kind of talking about working with Gordon early on, 
that undoubtedly you two patented some brilliant system for dealing with e-discovery and are multi-billionaires now. We are not. We have we have about 10 or 11 patents between us, but there is building something and then uh, building something that works. And then there is showing the world that it works. <laughs> and, and getting them to believe that it works. And getting them to believe that it works. And, and we decided, well, you haven't met Gordon. If you met Gordon, you'd understand He's a pure, you know, he's a real bona fide academic. So money is not all that interesting to him. But setting that aside, we decided our contribution would be to help people be able to use these technologies because they were not going to use them without a court saying this is okay, this is acceptable a way to do it. And a court wouldn't be able to do that unless there was some peer-reviewed scientific research to be able to lean on. So we decided, at least for starters, uh, we've done fine, uh, but we haven't commercialized a product. Instead, we, we use the tools that we have to do matters for clients, but our focus has been on education and on helping with adoption by, by building that sort of fundamental scientific evidence that's, that so many technologies that are used today don't, don't have. Well, it all seems kind of impenetrable. I, you know, I think of more simplistic things like in a DUI, you know, the state toxicologist in Maryland has to come to court and certify that things have been done properly. Or if somebody gets a speeding ticket, they have to show they calibrated the speed radar that morning kind of thing. And that seems scientific enough to me, although I've had to learn a little more just from doing medical negligence cases. But it sounds like a pretty daunting task to take these functions and make them something that people can understand and accept as evidence and without getting too inside baseball with things, we've talked on the show about Daubert previously and, you know, expert acceptance and that sort of thing. I would think it wasn't the easiest task in the world to persuade people that incomprehensible technologies should be accepted for what their, their output is. Uh, that is correct. It has been uh, a decade uphill battle. It is still a bit of a battle. This still is not, I wouldn't say it wasn't widely accepted, but it's not ubiquitous. It should be more adopted than it is. I have been called every name in the book, including the most dangerous lawyer in America. But I like uh, that one. That was partially because of some naivete in my part of not realizing by introducing this technology, Gordon and I were going to cut into huge profits that many law firms and legal service providers were making through a very manual process. So now instead of hiring, uh, you're hiring uh, for your matter 50 contract attorneys or junior associates to do something. I can do it with a computer, you know, in what would take you six months. I can do it in two weeks, a tiny fraction of the cost. Uh, and that wasn't going to go over well. Uh, but that didn't occur to me because that was not the business model at the firm that I happened to be practicing at where this was an advantage to have these tools, but at many places it wasn't 
So add to that the economics and the incentives, add to that the lack of mathematical comfort of, of most attorneys, and uh, then it becomes a, a Sisyphean task. Well, let's drop into the general topic Sophia, itself. I love that. What is artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence is actually an umbrella term, somewhat ambiguous term that was introduced at a conference in Dartmouth actually in 1956. So it's not a recent term. And it basically means computers doing intelligent things. In other words, performing cognitive tasks, tasks that require thinking, processing, reasoning, and so forth, uh, once thought to be things only a human could do. And it's not one technology or one particular function. It's whatever a computer can't do until it can. And then once we get used to it, we tend to call it software. So if you think of your spam filter, that when spam filters first came into place, people couldn't understand or believe that a spam filter would be able to tell the difference between, you know, your mother's email or an email from your boss versus uh, real junk. Or when we had the first introduction of compare software that would take two documents and compare them and tell you how they were different, we didn't trust we didn't trust that, and now we don't give any of that kind of software a second thought. And um, when we talk about AI, there, there are two or three types. One is called narrow AI, and narrow or weak AI is AI that can perform one task as well or better than a human. So a, a chess-playing program that can beat a human player is narrow or weak AI. There's also the concept of general or strong AI, which is sort of your AI that can do everything better. And we don't have that. That's very controversial, even in the computer science world about whether we'll ever have that, because there are things three-year-olds can do that, that computers can't do yet. You know, sometimes computers are very, very literal. Uh, and uh, and then there's this super intelligence, you know, which is this Terminator take over the whole world, make us all into paper clips kind of fantasy, which is really more the science fiction world. And so normally what we're talking about when we're talking about AI is some kind of algorithm. And an algorithm is simply a set of rules to achieve a goal. So a recipe to bake a cake is an algorithm. It tells you what amounts to put in, uh, in what order, what to do with them and so forth. Well, a computer algorithm does the same thing. Let's weight this variable this much and let's add that variable and weight it that way and let's combine them this way and do this various processes and we, we get to our goal, which is, which is the output or the result of the AI system. And then it gets much more complicated when uh, you start to ask me, well, you know, what is machine learning or what is natural language processing or deep learning, which are all kinds of, of AI. But the, the concept of AI itself is sort of a generic term that depends totally on context and timing, because what was AI yesterday is not uh, AI today. And, and what's AI tomorrow will be something uh, quite different. 
So the problem is, I would think that most people struggle with mathematics, struggle with the notions of algorithms, and would consequently struggle with acceptance of the output of artificial intelligence, which ultimately becomes our software. So how did, how was that overcome or has it been overcome? One could say the same thing about an airplane. I don't understand how lift works. Uh, frankly, I'm not even sure I understand how my hairdryer works. Uh, but at least as to the airplane, we have a regulator that has sort of certified the tool and said that it's sort of safe for you to use. So I can uh, get on a, a flight as I will later this week and rest assured that it's going to land. The problem is we don't have that right now in AI. And that's why one of the challenges when this information uh, that comes from a system like this is evidence is we have to ask what validation was done, what testing was done to make sure it does what it says it does, and it does it consistently over time under the same circumstances. Uh, and this is where we get into, uh, we can talk later about some of the Daubert factors of, of ha having to assess the these tools properly. But I think what's a, a real challenge here is that often, some AI systems are not even transparent or explainable by their developers. And what do you do when somebody can't explain to you how something got to its answer? Then you need to be really comfortable that it actually is measuring what it's supposed to measure and it's not incorporating bias or error or things like that. The answer to that is object. You right. know, on some level, that's what we're always going to do as a refuge when it's something we don't comprehend that has something bad in it for our clients, I think. Um, and I guess ruling on the objections is what falls to you, Judge Grimm, that it's got to be a tricky business sometimes having something come in that purports to do all sorts of miraculous calculations and present something that has evidentiary value and then you can't really penetrate and understand what's going on with it. So that takes us to the, I'm going to call it somewhat of a legal philosophical question that I think that both Moore and I, Professor Grossman and I, feel is sort of at the core of this, which is why we have uh, done the work that we've done in this article and in, in these conversations like we're having now. In the litigation context, we have the adversary system. So in a criminal case, the prosecutor is trying to prove elements of a crime, the defense is trying to either disprove elements of the crime or raise other issues that will be questions of doubt. In a civil case, someone's said that someone else has done something that is a tort or somehow has affected them in a way that entitles them to compensation or redress. And in each of these things, there's always a risk of an outcome that if you had all the time in the world and all the resources is less than perfect. Science, as Mora can tell you better than I can, science never, ever accepts anything as immutably proven. The notion of scientific proof deals in the scientific method with what they call falsifiability. You know, right now, Sir Isaac Newton's theory of gravity is, you know, the laws of gravity. We haven't 
been able to disprove it. But we do know that there are circumstances where there is no gravity when you go out in space. So at some point, science is always going to test something, kick the tires. It's that whole scientific process. And this is why peer review becomes important in the Dalbert analysis that you've already spoken to your audience about other, other times about, is that, you know, I come up with a, with a brilliant idea. I publish it. Maura takes a look at it and says, that's interesting. I wonder if I can replicate it. She and Gordon go out there and they replicate it, but they find that I only looked at it to a certain extent in a certain context. And if you apply it to other contexts that it's going to want to be applied to, but it hasn't been tested, it doesn't do so well. And so then they publish something. And in the course of time, we get this consensus. But no one ever comes out and says, we, we're going to stop work on this now. Put it aside. It's immutably proven. End of the day, we all sit back and congratulate ourselves for our wisdom. Law doesn't look that way. We deal with situational proof. We have a limited amount of time in the context of a case to prove something. And we have to do it knowing that we have to rely upon factual information of sometimes unverifiable, complete accuracy. So things that we have relied upon in the law for generations at times come forward and we find out they're wrong. So we found out that this thing called eyewitness identification, which most people say, well, I saw it. There's, it's fraught with all kinds of things. And, and, and Professor Grossman from her psychological background knows that there's a lot of studies on that. Uh, we had, we had um, you know, so-called forensic uh, science, you know, things that talked about hair fiber analysis and we talked about um, stress, voice stress analysis and blood spatter analysis and, and some of these uh, issues associated with um, uh, fire cause and effect origin and arson cases and um, guns, and, and guns, ballistic, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the ballistic analysis of. Uh, You're previewing of, our next show, incidentally. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, the tool mark evidence in, in terms of transfer of, sure. of marks on there. And what has happened is that um, these have been accepted as, you know, gospel and not questioned. And, and at times it turns out that, that, you know, the Innocence Project, for example, has shown that, that um, a lot of people who were uh, absolutely identified in, in the eyewitness identification, it was, it was wrong, they were wrongfully convicted, people have been executed wrongfully. And so we always have this continuum of what's at issue in a case. Now, if it's a small court claim and it's it's $1,000 at issue, then I don't want to lose $1,000 or the other side wants to get $1,000. But if we don't get it, it's not the end of the world. On the other hand, if you execute someone because they've been convicted on evidence that turns out not to have been um, reliable evidence, um, or um, if you don't convict somebody, but you, you, uh, you, know, you, you lock them up and decide that their liberty interest is going to be affected, or you tell them that you're not going to get a loan that they need desperately, or a job that they need to have, because of decision-making that was flawed, um, you know, then that could be the case. We know that human beings are flawed. We know that we have biases. It used to be that, that we only cared about, you know, explicit you know, bias, but now we know about implicit bias, that, that we are products of our upbringing and we have assumptions, stereotypical thinking that we're not even aware that we're doing. And, and so we're now much more sophisticated about some of the risks in terms of accepting as gospel the facts that have been kind of the, the you know, the, the workaday nature of, um, of law. 
So we deal with a situation where we don't have time and resources to be perfect in all cases. We have too many cases that have to be decided. Um, we can't paralyze the system by going so slow that we can't get it. We have people with uneven resources who are involved in the process. So we have to have techniques available for judges in good faith to do the very best that they can under difficult circumstances when there's polar opposites. One says tomato, one says tomato, one says potato, one says potato. The judge doesn't have the discretion to call the whole thing off as the old song goes, but has to I remember it well. The rules of evidence give us that analytical framework. So we start with the lowest part of the building block, the DNA of admissibility, if I can. And that's relevance. You know, does this evidence have a tendency to prove something that's important in the case? Now, that's a low bar because it's more likely than not. That's just a, a fraction more than a flip of a coin. It's 51%, as you well know, Bob, because you're a litigator. But if it's not relevant, it has no tendency to prove anything, then we can all agree it's got no point being looked at. It's just speculation. We don't want that. Um, but what we then have to deal with is, is that um, when you're trying to determine whether something has a tendency to prove something or not, um, when the parties are going to have different views on that, um, the judge has to have a set of, of analytical tools that, that she or he can use to make these determinations. We know that in highly technical evidence, this is what the, the Daubert cases in the 1990s gave us, and that was adopted as the 2000 changes to the rules of evidence, to evidence rule 702, you know, the, the court said, well, you know, you got to have enough data. You can't have a, you can't have what, what litigators used to refer to as swag, a uh, scientific wild ass guess. Um, and um, never heard you know, of it. <laughs> so yeah, I knew, I saw you smile when I said that, um, you know, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, you have, two little facts and you automatically start to, to you know, come up with an opinion. Um, you know, we, we, we are, as people, we form opinions immediately. We're, we're, you have to be schooled like Mora and, and, and uh, Gordon to curb your, your desire to jump to the what it is. We don't like mysteries. We want to know what the answer is. We'll start with an assumption. We can be persuaded one way or the other, but we, we don't like that uncertainty. It's cognitive dissonance. It's, it's, it's cognitively uncomfortable for us to not know. So we form, it, we form a hypothesis and maybe it holds, maybe it doesn't. The legal framework and evidence is designed to give the judge some tools. And while relevance is a low threshold, we know relevance is important because if your AI gives an output that is not reliable, then it doesn't have a tendency to prove anything important. Um, it's not helpful when we're dealing with expertise beyond the knowledge of a, of a lay, lay jury or lay juror or a judge who's a generalist, and most judges are generalists, then um, we have to rely upon the expertise of the people who are doing it. But we have a system where each side goes and hires their expert. Now, more I can tell you that while lawyers have to walk a fine line, ethically, of course, they, they, they have to to get an expert who, who can back up what that person is saying. But you don't hire an expert you know is going to give an adverse opinion. I mean, you may, you may initially consult with them, but that's not the person you put on the trial. So each side is paying to buy the most expensive expert that they can find and they think is most persuasive to, to, to support their theory of the case. And, and it happens all the time. I mean, Maura sees that as a, as a special master. You get someone comes in and says, absolutely, this is, this is absolutely the way it is. Someone else comes in there and says, this is absolutely not the way it is. It's, just, it's completely night and day. 
So how does the judge decide? Well, how do we get to our opinions? Opinions are the end of a process of gathering facts and applying methodology. So what is the methodology? Well, the methodology changes depending on what it is. Talk to an auto mechanic, and the auto mechanic says, well, you tune a car, you do this first, and then you do that, and you have to this, 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 and that, you follow that methodology. If you skip this part, you go in there. I mean, think of it this way. Go to Ikea and buy yourself a, a piece of furniture with a lot of different steps to it and all those Allen winches and start putting it together without looking at the instructions, not in the order that you say. Um, you're going to have a frustrating day, I suspect. Um, if you do it according to the step-by-step-by-step, you get the product that you want to have. And, and that's what the rules of evidence give us some ability to do. But they also give us something that is a leveler of the playing field. And that is prejudice. And you know that well. That there's a doctrine of unfair prejudice that you can have evidence that is relevant. It, it gets over that 51% hurdle of having some tendency. But some tendency, depending upon what the risk is of getting it wrong. If the risk of getting it wrong is that someone is executed or locked up or loses a job, or doesn't get um, a loan that they need to survive on, then, then the judge has the ability and their discretion to say, well, I want more reassurance before I am uh, capable of saying that the prejudice does not substantially outweigh the danger of the benefits. That's why the Daubert factor uh, factors are very easy to articulate and very hard to apply because you have to understand so it's, it's, has it been tested? And this is what gets us back to what we talked about in our article. Who tests it? I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money on this software. I want to get it out there right away. I've tested it, but I have an incentive, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not, it's not the same as if the National Institutes of Science and Technology independently tests it. And, and not only that, but I've invested time and money in doing this. So if I just open up the doors to everybody, someone comes in there and says, well, I'm interested in this too, but I don't want to spend the time and money to do it. I'm going to steal your things and go out and do it. So I have intellectual property rights in it. And you get into some of these confounders, complicators. So you have to look at, you know, has it been tested? Is there an error rate? What is that error rate? More will tell you right now, there's no one error rate you apply to everything. The example more, I think you came up with it, or, or someone came up with it, and I thought it really helps the best in some of the research we have is, is, is let's take a look at, at, at various error rates. Bob, if I were to tell you that, that there's a 2% error rate, 98% accuracy rate, you would say that's pretty doggone good. I would. But if I gave you a jar of M&Ms with 100 M&Ms in there, and I said two of these M&Ms are poisonous, they'll kill you in a heartbeat. But 98 are pretty good. I shake the jar up and I say, Bob, you want an M&M? When the risk of a getting it wrong is instant death, you're, you're, suddenly your desire for M&Ms has, has declined. Let me the give ultimate you prejudice. That's right. I think Maura came up with this in an example. And that is, now let's assume that you go to the doctor and God forbid the doctor says you have a terminal cancer. And there is no known uh, FDA approved treatment for this cancer. And you will die in six months. And I, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but this is true. You can't be reversed. There's nothing that we can do. There is no health medicine to give you. But there's this new experimental technique that's being used right now. In 40% of the cases, it will completely cure you. It will totally cure you. And you can have a normal life expectancy. In 60% of the cases, it will kill you. Do you want to be in the trial? Now, in that circumstance, you know, a 60% likelihood of failure is terrible. Who would, 
Who would want to buy into that? But what's the course? The alternative is 100% chance of death. And you got a 40%, which is, you know, 60-40 is, is it's not 99-1. So the error rate depends upon what's at stake and, and, and what the interests are. So it's not one. You can't say it has to be an error rate of less than X or Y. And more, I think this is what kind of came out with the tar that was, I think, a distractor when people started getting notions of recall and precision and it had to be over 90, whatever. You know, these techniques were getting better results than any human could come up with. And, and yet, because they, you know, people were arguing about whether it had to have 95% or 98% or 90% or what it was. What happens is, is that the Daubert tests, tested error rate, who are the people that deal with this, who deal with this subject matter when it's not in a trial where someone's going to make money to do it? What do they say is the proper way to do it? Has that been complied with? Have people who've done this put it out for other people to kick the tires on that and find out whether there are any flaws in there? And if, if, if it's been used and you say there are standard methods of doing this and someone's deviated from it, then that's a red, a red flag. More I can tell you that in psychology, they have these tests, you know, Rochart test and the Minnesota multiphasic and all these other things. And there's a standard test and a standard scoring. It, it, you will see psychologists say, well, I modified the, the MMM, whatever that thing is. And I tweak this yeah. and tweak that. And here it is. And a lot of people say, no, the minute you change the, the, the procedure that's accepted and the scoring method, that has not been tested. That has not been validated. And so these kinds of things all go on. Now, how do you deal with it in an individual case? Well, I mean, you shift gears from you've, you've been you've done medical malpractice work, so some you have a case involving a, a complicated pregnancy that resulted in injury. Now you have a failure to diagnose cancer. Now you have whether the treatment for a hip replacement was correct. So you have each of these areas of medicine that you have learned a whole new technology, a whole new specialized area about. And there's an infinite number. And then you deal with economics, and then you deal with, then you deal with with physics, and you deal with you know engineering, and you deal with all of these things that come in that are wrapped up in this highly technological area that we live in now, at the time that we live in now. And and one single judge and the lawyers on the side have got to get smart enough to be able to deal with to figure it all out when you don't have all the time in the world and you don't have all the resources. And all you can do is the best that you can do. And so what we're trying to do with AI is identify what some of these issues are so that the judge who has to make the call can insist upon the input from the parties that will allow that judge to be able to make the best call possible. And some of the things that we're trying to get people to say is like, what was this AI designed to do? You know, who developed it? Um, has it been tested or validated? Was it done by them? Does someone else do that? Has it had you know, some peer review kind of stuff on it? Can you explain it? Like Maura talks about explainable AI. Well, if you can't explain it, can you otherwise prove that it works? Let me give you an example. Waze or Google Maps. I understand it has something to do with satellites and it has something to do with you know cell phones and radio waves and geography and all that. I don't know how it works. Um, I don't know where somebody has said, well, you know, plus or minus, it says you're, it says you turn left in 50 feet, but it's really 60 feet, whether that makes a difference. I can't tell you what the error rate is or what is tested, but I've used it long enough to know that if Waze tells me to drive off a cliff, I'm driving off that cliff. Now, there are cases where people have done that oh, I because know. it was erroneous, 
But the overwhelming use of it is, is that I've now gotten to the point where if I'm driving two miles away to the drugstore, I put ways on because I want to know if somebody had an accident and I'm going to have to wait there if I should take this street over here and go, which is ridiculous because I know how to get there. So evidence rules give us a framework for cutting into these things and requiring the information to happen. But what you have to have is you have to have the lawyers who will spend the time and the resources to understand it. Experts like Maura, like, like um, Gordon, like many of the people who are legitimate, who um, will be honest in their expression of what it is. And a judge who has the time and will put the effort in to do the work to get the best decision you can get. And then it goes up on appeal and someone else second guesses. There's a part of me that wonders if what we should do is in every court have a technology person who's, you know, whether it's a magistrate judge or, a, you know, a judge or an outside attorney to look at AI evidence people prospectively want to use and, you know, consider whether a motion in limine is appropriate to keep it out for any of the various failings or whether it's admissible and under what circumstances. And that way, the trial judge, many of whom probably are not nearly as sophisticated as the two of you with regard to this stuff, would be better served by that. There are tools for doing it. Of course, the court can hire an expert under Evidence Rule 706, but that's expensive and the parties have to pay for it. The other thing is, is that there's a, there's a body of law, and I've used it myself in some very technical cases, where the court not gets an expert who independently expresses an opinion. So the plaintiff's what expert says this, the defendant's expert says this, we've got a court expert says that, and then all of them are giving their opinion, the jury figures it out. But rather you can have court technical advisors and they can come in. And um, again, there's a cost associated with that because if they're good, they're gonna, they should be paid for their time. And they come in not to tell the judge how to rule, but to tell the judge, this is what these terms mean. And, and when this publication says this, you know, this is what's important in that publication and to help the judge be in a position to be able to question the experts. And you can do things in a novel way. I've oftentimes said, okay, I don't want the lawyers to examine the experts the way they do the trial because they don't know what I need to know. And they don't know that I know what I need to know to rule on this. They want to try and, and limit this from the very beginning. So they're going to focus from their perspective. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what they're hired to do as advocates. I want to get the experts in side by side and say, all right, doctor, you said this. Now tell me about how that works. And turn to the other expert and say, what do you got to say about that? And then turn back to that first expert and say, what do you got to say about what they had to say? And by doing that, get information where I can control that dialogue. That's out there. It's just not done very often. So where do you see this going, Maura? This is going to proliferate. It is almost in every area now from logistics to employment to policing fintech, everything, financial. So there's just going to be more and more of it. And it is going to start to come into the legal system. There is no doubt that people are going to start to say that screening tool discriminated against me for the job I applied for, or I didn't get that loan because I'm a minority or I live in this neighborhood or or whatever. So I, I think Lawyers and judges need to start to get prepared for this and not stay asleep at the switch and hoping uh, it doesn't come. And it's not going to get easier just because you have two experts, because if you have two experts who are just up there talking math, that's not going to be terribly helpful. So I think judges 
and and this is what we tried to do in our um, our paper and a lot of the talks we give is to give people the questions they should be asking the kinds of questions that they should be asking to get the information that they need to be able to make some of these decisions and to be able to assess, is this an algorithm that's just being used to pick the next song I'm going to listen to, big deal? Or I is, like that one. You know, or is this an algorithm that is going to decide whether this person gets bail or not? And that the stakes are very different in those two circumstances. And I think the other thing we advocate for is greater use of protective orders when people say, this is proprietary, this is commercial, sorry, I can't explain to you uh, anything about how it works or what data it was trained on or who developed it or how they developed it or how it gets to its output. That's a no-no in, I think, our our book that uh, you can't say that and then also say, well, just trust me. Just I did testing, uh, even though I, you know, I'm not at arm's length and, and I have a financial interest in this. That's not going to work. And I think to, to Professor Grossman's point, the, the reason given for not producing that, of course, is the is a trade secret, confidential commercial information privilege. Privileges are, are curious things because under the evidence rules, the federal rules of evidence declined the opportunity to codify the various privileges and just said, go out to the rules of evidence. So each state has its own evidentiary privileges. And we're familiar with attorney-client privilege and work product protection, which is a qualified immunity privilege and doctor-patient and, you know, and, and, and executive and all those things. But most privileges have qualifications to them. And, and the, the commercial uh, secret and trade secret privilege is a qualified privilege that can be overcome when a party needs to have access to that information. And the way you deal with it, I think that, that Professor Grossman and I think is the proper balance. And I think courts are starting to see that, is that when it's just not fair for a party to, trust me, this is how this works, but the output of that in something like, for example, in, in DNA evidence, when you tell a jury that the defendant's DNA was found someplace, you know, most of them have watched enough CSI programs where they just absolutely believe it, whether whether it's it's good science or non-science or right? good methodology or not good methodology. So, you know, when you when you have that, the way you do it is you is you put into place protections and, and they're out there and they exist and they're not that hard to put in place where you prevent the competitor from getting access to it that's going to steal the idea, but you let the proper people have access to it to test it and kick the tires for that particular case. It's not that hard to do. And I think that that's the type of information that we have. And if someone says, well, we don't know how the software works, you know, there are other ways of proving that it works. It's the notion of you don't have to have a glass box so that you see every movement within it but a black box where there's nothing inside that you can see and you have no way of measuring it against what it's designed to do to see whether that's acceptably accurate. And we talk in our paper about the twin related concepts of validity and reliability, validity being accuracy, how, how accurately does it do what it purports to do, and then reliability, how consistently is it accurate when you apply it to similar fact patterns. 
and they both are usually sort of mushed together in one as just sort of accuracy or reliability. But reliability actually has a, is a technically different definition than validity. So you just do the best that you can, and you know the system's not perfect, but the fact that it's not perfect is not a justification for not making it as perfect as you can. And we hope that, that the kind of work that we've been doing will give people a better, more confident way of sort of trying to address this stuff. I am very grateful that the two of you are working on this and that I'm not. And I know we've come to the end of the program, but I would love to have you back on sometime. There were so many things that I intended to talk about, but it's just such a deep and broad area that uh, I really like to thank you both for coming on. And I'm hopeful we get you back again sometime. My pleasure. Thanks, Bob. And thanks, Mara. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.